You probably know this already, but love is the most important thing in life. Nearly all of us would say that the most important thing in our life is not our accomplishments or our careers or even anything that we own. We would say what matters most in our lives are the people who make up our lives. Around Community Christian, we say that the best life possible is the one where we learn from Jesus how to love everyone always just like He loved us. And whether or not you believe Jesus is who He says He is, I bet you think that's a good goal, right? We all think the world would be better if more people were more loving. But we don't really consider ourselves as part of that more people who need to learn how to love. We sort of think that it's just kind of a natural thing for us. When you're with people that you love, it's a natural thing to be loving to them. But that reasoning doesn't really stand up to logic. If I decide that love is natural, then everything I naturally do is loving. When I choose to lose my temper, well, it's just because I love them so much that when they disappoint me or when I get scared for them, whatever comes out of my mouth may not sound loving, but it's coming from a loving place. Or it's because I love them that I work all this overtime because I want to provide good things for them. And the reason that I put all this pressure and expectation on the people in my life is because I love them and I just want them to do their best. So when we get to define love, then I can justify almost anything. But let's be honest, we all know that it's a double standard because there are things that were unloving when other people did them to us, but then when we did them to someone else, we justified it. Why? Because it was natural. It felt pretty natural when my spouse pushed my buttons to say those hurtful words, or when my child let me down to unload all my disappointment and frustration on them. And you knew it wasn't loving when you did it either, but you didn't want to face the truth, so you changed your definition of love. But what if love isn't a word that you get to define, but it's a person that you can be in relationship with? What if the writers of the Bible were right and God is love? And what if He's the standard against which we measure our ability to love? And what if He has a path to lead us to becoming the kind of people where His brand of patience, kindness, self-giving, others-focused love could be natural and easy for us? Would you want that? Well, throughout this video, that's what we're gonna be discovering together. What it really means to love everyone always. And the God we see in Jesus is going to be our model for this. And even if you're not sure you believe in Jesus, I hope you'll stick around because no matter what you think about God, I believe He can't stop thinking about you. That He's for you and only has good things in mind for your life and we want to help you find all that God has in store for you. Hi, my name is Heidi, and welcome to Community Christian Anywhere.
So when Jesus was asked what was most important in life, he answered by quoting part of the scriptures of the Jewish people. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, when most of us hear this, we think, oh, well, that's good news because I'm already doing that. As I define love, I'm really good at it. But by quoting the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus doesn't allow us to define what love God and love people means. For Jesus' audience of religious leaders, this quote would have been like a hyperlink that when you click it, it pulls all this other backstory that they would have already in their brains. And it's hard for us to understand, but just think about Jesus' audience of religious leaders as like a group of really nerdy Star Trek fans who know every episode of every series and they reference it constantly. It would be as if someone referred to a situation as a Kobayashi Maru. You may not get the reference, but all the Star Trek fans are immediately taken back to the first time they heard those words. And when the religious leaders heard Jesus say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, they were instantly reminded of the first time those words were said over a thousand years before Jesus was even born. They were first said by Moses, the man God had chosen to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt to a land that had been long promised to them. But before they got to this promised land, God laid out for them the way they should live there. These commands would be their laws for how to live. And then God had Moses give this command to the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, which by the way is something many of them literally did. For the people of Israel, love God didn't mean just think good thoughts about God or feel affection for God. It meant obey God's commands, but not as some legalistic system of rules that you're terrified of the consequences or that you're trying to find loopholes in so you can get around it. God intended his laws to be a picture of what life with him could be like if an entire group of people did it. A life where you treat people like God wants you to, and you honor yourself and God's creation and God himself by following God's way of doing life. God's laws were to be about a group of people ordering themselves and their entire society around how God wanted life to function and flourish. But Moses warned them, Hey, one day you're gonna be living in this land with cities you didn't build and wells you didn't dig and gardens you didn't plant. And you're going to forget that once you were slaves in Egypt and God rescued you, you're gonna think you earned this for yourself. And so you can decide how you should live. And when you do, you're gonna turn away from following God's way of life and it will lead to your destruction. And that's exactly what happened. 
the people of Israel who once were poor refugees in a land that eventually oppressed and enslaved them, when they got power and wealth, they began to take advantage of the poor and the foreigners. They began to oppress and enslave people. They ignored any of the commands of God that were about how to take care of other people, and they only followed the commands that were about religious rituals. And hundreds of years later, God spoke to the people of Israel again through another prophet named Micah. And Micah asked them, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Now, these were the kind of things the Israelites had begun to convince themselves is what God wanted not because it's ever what God cared about, but because all the other ancient religions around them were about sacrifice and offerings. It's like how we convince ourselves that we're good at loving God because we show up to church and we raise our hands during the music or we vote the right way, or we're generally nice and loyal people to our friends. But this isn't what God called for, and Micah points this out directly. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And though we can't really see it right now, Micah is also pointing back to the two commands Jesus did, love God and love people. But he is making it so clear to us where the people of Israel failed to love God and love people, how they had redefined love in their own terms into the things that were easy and natural for them, but had failed to do what God wanted them to do most. And I think if we look at Micah's words closely, we'll see we fail as well. In the simplest terms, when the writers of the Bible talk about justice, they talk about making wrong things right. Justice is about the world looking as God always intended it to look. Whether it be in a person's life or in the life of a family or in society as a whole, justice is when people live as God would have them live. Justice is making wrong things right and treating other people rightly. But God gets to decide what is wrong and what is right. From the beginning, God created human beings in His image to do life with Him and to rule with Him for the good of the world, the creatures, and the people that He had created. But the first temptation that humans faced was whether or not they would eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was just a metaphorical way to say that human beings choose to define for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We choose to decide what's right and what's wrong on our own, which is why our current political debates about whether justice is social justice or law and order kind of justice are really missing the point. If you were to ask the writers of the Bible, does God think it's the individual person's job to be moral and just, or is it society as a whole that needs to be good and just? they would probably look confused and simply answer, yes. God wants individual people to act justly. And since society is just a group of individuals living together, He wants society to act justly as well. The issue isn't who should be good and just. The issue is who gets to define what is good and just. Because 
If I think individual freedom is what justice looks like, I may justify not helping you when you're in need because you should help yourself. And if fixing societal problems is what justice looks like, then I may never feel the need to handle my own individual problems. Which is why in the Bible, God chooses an individual man named Abraham, and he says, I want you to do life with me, and I'll show you what is good and what is evil. And then from that one man, God builds a family, and then an entire society of families, which was the nation of Israel. And he gave them laws for them to order not just their individual lives and their families, but also their nation as a whole. And he said, this is what justice looks like. And these laws covered everything from morality and law and order to issues of social justice, like how to take care of widows and orphans and immigrants. To love God and love people meant to act justly. And to act justly means to follow what God said was right and was wrong. Good and evil for all people, not just for you. We don't get to decide for ourselves, but God's goal wasn't to give people a set of laws that would have to be enforced through rewards and consequences. His goal was that eventually people would follow God's way of goodness and justice from their hearts, not from the external motivations, but the internal motivations of love and mercy. God gave the laws of Moses as part of a covenant or an agreement between God and people. But through prophets like Micah, God began promising Israel a new covenant. One prophet explained God's new covenant like this, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. God is not interested in robots who will mindlessly or even fearfully obey His commands, but in having a relationship with human beings made in His image who willingly choose out of love to do what He would have them do. This is why Micah says to not just act justly, but to love mercy. Mercy is a gut-level compassion. The Hebrew word for mercy can be translated as womb-like tenderness, the kind of loving kindness that a mother has for her newborn baby. It's the kind of love God feels towards us. We think of mercy as being the opposite of justice, but the Bible points to mercy being the motivation for justice. A merciful person who tenderly cares about all people would see the man or woman across from them in a business dealing or a personal relationship or the person on the other side of the country or planet who is in poverty or hungry as an extension of themselves. That's the person who couldn't imagine treating them unfairly or with cruelty and malice. A merciful person is someone who naturally loves their neighbor as themselves, which is why when Jesus was asked what it means to love your neighbor as yourself, he responded with the story of the Good Samaritan a man who came across a wounded stranger who was ethnically different from him. In fact, they were racial enemies. Yet this Samaritan man had mercy on him. And because of his gut level compassion, he acted justly. He took care of the man. He made the wrong things right. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus would say, in doing so, 
you would love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. One of the primary things Jesus came to accomplish was to do what Israel failed to do. They never truly loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength because they had never followed his law, which was all about loving their neighbor as themselves. They hadn't acted justly. They abandoned God's vision for what good and evil was in their personal morality. And they followed idols and false gods that promised them political and military power, wealth and prosperity, moral and sexual freedom. And they became like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon, these nations that had oppressed and enslaved them. And they began oppressing and enslaving others at a systemic societal level. It's complete personal and social failure. They failed to be just because they didn't love mercy. They didn't care for the struggles of anyone but themselves. And ultimately, this was because they failed to walk humbly with their God. This was God's ultimate desire for his people. It's a picture that points back to the Garden of Eden story in the beginning of the Bible. God walking through the garden with Adam and Eve. His desire was not to control human beings, but to walk through life with them. But this walking with God ended the moment that human beings decided to define good and evil for themselves. But through Jesus, we're invited back into the with God life. But walking with God is a daily thing. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's a moment by moment conversational relationship with God. And conversational means that I'm talking with God about what we're doing together and I'm listening to Him. I'm not being led by my emotions or the stray thoughts or my natural reactions to redefine good and evil for myself. I'm allowing God to speak into every thought, every feeling, every moment, and I'm being led by Him. But to walk with God requires humility. Jesus said it was like being born again, that I would become like a child again. Just like a child is born into a world that they know nothing about and must learn from their parents how to do every part of life, being born into God's way of life, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God, that requires the humility to admit, I don't know how to do anything in God's world. I need to learn from Jesus how to do everything in my life. And once again, that's a daily moment by moment thing. Humility means I don't make everything about me. It means I don't center myself in the middle of everything. I understand that I'm not the most important person and I value others above myself. So to walk humbly with God means that my primary interest is what God wants. He is more important than me. When He commands me to do something, my first thought isn't how that might inconvenience me or make me uncomfortable or how that doesn't fit in with my life goals. My first thought is, how can I best serve God? You see, most of us are most concerned about what we want to get out of life. If you go to see a financial planner, they ask, what are your financial goals? What do you want out of your life? When a student goes to a university or a person goes on a job interview, they ask, where do you see yourself in five years? What are your goals? And see, that often determines what we decide love looks like. 
If what I want out of life is to build a good career and achieve success, then love looks like doing something that my kids or my parents or the people in my life can be proud of. If what I want most out of life is to build a good family, then that's what love is. It's sacrificing everything to make them happier, to make them like me. If what I want most out of life is to make a difference in this world, then love means me doing whatever I can to leave my mark on this world. Now you might hear all that and think, well, those don't sound like bad things. I don't see what the problem is. The problem is that you've centered yourself and what you want to get out of life as most important. And when you live your life for you, that's all you ever get, more of you. And maybe that's good news for you, but it isn't for me because I know what more of me leads to. So a person who walks humbly with God asks, what does God want most out of my life? What does God get out of my life? One of my favorite authors is a man named Dallas Willard. And he said, the main thing God gets out of your life is not the achievements you accomplish, it's the person you become. The gift you give to God is not the family you build or the awards you win or the impact you make on the world around you. It's the person you become. A person who doesn't make their life all about them, but walks humbly with God. And out of this conversational everyday walking with God, out of a heart and mind that are tuned to listening to God, He begins to change my heart and mind. He helps me to love mercy, which just means to be devoted to mercy. And when I become the kind of person who sees every person through the lens of mercy and loving kindness, then I naturally act justly. I do what's in their best interest. I work with God to make wrong things right, and it has become natural to me. You see, God is trying to transform me into the kind of person for whom His brand of patient, kind, envy-free, others-focused, humble, just, and merciful love is as natural to me as breathing. What I would naturally do in any situation is what God would do. But I'm not there, and I bet you're not either. It's why we need to humbly walk with God. Here's how one follower of Jesus named Paul put it. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Paul is echoing the words of Micah here. What kind of worship does God want? He wants a life fully surrendered to Him. And this is what God gets out of your life. He gets you. It's what He wants most, life with you. And here's how you live that life. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Then you will know, just as Adam and Eve were promised to know good and evil, it's the kind of knowledge that became second nature to them. When you daily live in a conversational relationship with God, talking to Him, listening to Him, learning from Him how to do life, then His will, His brand of love, it will become second nature to you as well. You will begin to easily do the kind of things that Jesus did. The central model for the Christian life is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And on the cross of Jesus, 
we see the justice, mercy, and humility of God on display. It was the justice of God that led him to the cross because on the cross, God reconciled all things to himself, meaning he made all the wrong things right, both in our personal lives and in our world. Through Jesus, God brought about his justice and he proved his never failing mercy. Jesus was not pressured or forced or obligated to go to the cross. He willingly chose to die for us because of his tender loving kindness. And all of this flowed out of his humble and obedient relationship to his father. Moments before Jesus was to be arrested, he prayed to his father and asked if the cup of suffering he was about to drink could be taken from him. But in humility, he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, the King of all kings, humbled himself to the position of a servant on the cross and obeyed his Father's will for his life. You and I don't get to decide what love looks like. The cross is the picture of what love looks like. Justice, mercy, humility, and for followers of Jesus, the cross is our example of how to live our lives. But we won't naturally choose a cross-shaped life. We need to learn from Jesus how to do it. And here at Community Christian, we want to help you do just that. We have communities specifically created to help you learn practices that will help you walk humbly with God. And as you walk through life with God, He will transform your nature into a person who loves mercy. And once He's transformed your nature, you'll naturally act justly. We would love to help you get into a group where you can learn from Jesus how to do your life just as He would do it if He were you. All you need to do is text the words next step to the number on the screen and someone from our team will help you figure out what your next step is in living more like Jesus. But whatever step you take today, I hope you leave knowing that no matter what you think about God, He cannot stop thinking about you.